The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now, I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would, to uh, the, the uh, New Testament book of Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, and also hold that for a while because it'll be just a little while before I get to it. My first order of business today is to acknowledge the founding of our country 246 years ago. Now, tomorrow is Independence Day, and I'm sure that uh, uh, since you're all off of work, that you're thankful for at least one aspect of our country, and that is you get to take off on the holiday. But today's message, I don't intend to be about patriotism and the blessing of being an American. I am thankful to be an American, to live in this country. Uh, the freedoms that we enjoy here are a gift from God, especially religious freedom, because in the history of Christianity, there have been few Christians that have been free to worship the Lord Jesus Christ according to their conscience, as we do here in our country and as they do that, not to be burdened with governmental restrictions. In First Timothy chapter 2, Paul said that we should pray for those who are in authority. And that's an interesting scripture. You might want to turn to that and read it sometime, because essentially what Paul prays for is that the government would leave us alone, that they would allow us or leave us alone so that we would live lives of peace and quiet and godliness and honesty. And for most of us, that experience is what we have. That is a part of the great American experiment. But rather than to speak of allegiance to this country, I think it's more appropriate for us to swear allegiance to the heavenly country of which we have been made citizens by faith in Jesus Christ. Paul said in Philippians 3 that our citizenship is in heaven, and we look to heaven as we expect our Lord Jesus to come and to change this body that I've spoken of a minute ago with all of its troubles and sorrows and pains and all that we have to be a body that's glorified like the body of Jesus Christ. So the citizenship that draws my attention today is not an earthly one. Uh, this existence that we have here is, is fading, it is temporary, and we are, of course, aware that what the government does is to try and hamper rather than help our religious freedom. But our heavenly country will never fade away. The principles on which it stands are, are everlasting because Jesus Christ himself is everlasting. Now, because of those comments that have very little to do with the sermon that I want to speak today, uh, I'm going to be just a little bit longer than usual. So keep your minds uh, awake and open to hear the Word of God. Now, you've noticed that lately my sermons have become a little lengthier, and that may have something to do, I'm sure it does, with uh, not having a regular afternoon service because I just can't say everything that I want to say. Uh, last week I mentioned, I read an article about a fellow who talked about sermon lengths, and he advocated for shorter sermons. He said that after 20 minutes, you lose about 25% of the crowd. At 25 minutes, you lose about half the crowd. And if you should happen to reach 35 minutes, then you're only preaching to the masochists who just love to be beaten to death. So uh, some of you may advocate for that. You, you may want uh, shorter sermons. And my wife wants 15-minute sermons. And uh, you say, well, what do you mean? Your wife wants 15-minute sermons. Is that really appropriate for a pastor's wife? Well, I am pleased to have 15 minutes of her attention. Uh, she doesn't give me that much at home. Uh, of course, I can say that because she's not here. <laughs> Don't tell her. Well, let's move on from those thoughts into uh, a new series of messages that will occupy us for the next several weeks. Uh, since November of last year, we have uh, been in the Old Testament in Sunday morning sermons, and we've looked at the many ways that Christ is revealed to us in the Old Testament tabernacle worship, uh, worship that was given to Moses with the law when he was on Mount Sinai. Our purpose is to speak 
the purpose then was to speak more directly about the Savior from the Old Testament. So all the sermons were geared to be connected to him and to show those many ways that he is in the Old Testament, whether we find him there directly or indirectly. He is the central figure of the Bible. And that's why we have a Bible, that we may learn how to be saved and to have eternal life. And I want you to notice that I chose my words very carefully as I said that statement. I said that we may learn how to be saved and to have eternal life. I did not say that we can be saved and have eternal life. And the reason I say that is because there's a very subtle difference that shows that our salvation is by divine permission, not by human choice. God acts upon the man first before he can come to Jesus Christ. So God grants salvation. That's what the Bible says. He grants repentance and faith. He grants eternal life. That is a divine choice, not merely a human choice, even though human choices are made. Now today we begin this new series of messages. The, The last two were served as an introduction as we finished with the cloud of the tabernacle, and that was in the series, The Covenant of Christ. And we continue to speak of Christ in these sermons, but it might seem a little bit confusing to you at first whether we are speaking directly of Christ or speaking indirectly. And I hope by the time we get through all of this, you can make that right conclusion about what's taking place here. Uh, We're studying Christ through the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The title of the messages is the Spirit of Christ. I take it from Romans chapter 8, verse number 9. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Now, you could see by that verse that I could have titled this message in different ways. I could have said, well, we're going to have a series of messages about the Spirit of God. I could say that we're going to have a message, series of messages about the Spirit. We're going to have a series of messages about the Holy Spirit. Or as I have chosen, the Spirit of Christ. Those are all titles that are seen in this passage. So this reveals to us a, an extremely important fact that God is a triune God. That God is a trinity. And it also tells us that the Holy Spirit is equal to the Father and the Son. I mean, you can't escape the Trinitarian implications of this passage. Now, the Apostle Peter also used our terminology in his first letter to the Diaspora. He's speaking of the Old Testament prophets and how they testified of Christ long before the Incarnation. And his choice of words were quite interesting as he prophesied of the grace that was to come. And then he says in 1 Peter 1 verse 11, Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. The Spirit of Christ. I find this especially interesting in reference to our recent studies of the Holy Spirit and Christ in the Old Testament. As I preached on that cloud of the tabernacle, I told you that it was a picture. It was a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And here, the Apostle Peter says in this verse that that Spirit that was in the Old Testament, the one that the prophet spoke of was the Spirit of Christ. And, of course, he means the Holy Spirit, just as Paul referenced in Romans 8, verse 9. And further, we would note that the Spirit of Christ, Christ means Messiah. So he's the Spirit of Messiah. And one of the questions that we explored just a little bit in those messages on the tabernacle and the covenant of Christ was... How much did they understand about those pictures, those things that they were acting out in tabernacle worship? How much did they understand that those were about the coming Messiah, about Jesus Christ? And that's a question there's none of us that can answer fully. Well, Peter might give us a little bit of a hint about this, as he says in the 10th verse of this first chapter, just before the one we read, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace 
that should come unto you. The prophets inquired diligently, and the grace that was to come is Jesus Christ. They did their best to search it out, and they knew that what they prophesied was not for their time only, but for far had far-reaching consequences. That's one of the things you notice in Old Testament passages, that they put the first advent of Christ, the coming of Christ, right up next to their millennial prophecies. They didn't see this time that we have now. Their predictions of the coming Messiah overlooked or didn't understand uh, what we are going through in this age, the church age. So they saw the two events, the coming of Christ and the millennium, as one central idea, one central time period. And so this is the way that they, they preached. They didn't know that Christ would go away and come back again. And this is what we're doing. He has come the first time. And now we're waiting for him to come back again. But regardless of these questions about understanding, Peter is clear that the spirit that led all of these inquiries was the spirit of Christ, the grace that was to come, the one that they were looking for. So he had no trouble finding the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament scriptures or telling us that the Holy Spirit is and the spirit of Christ are, are equal. These are equal concepts. Now, one more comment about the title before we get to the text of the message my title is not an attempt to be coy. I'm not trying to be clever or trying to purposely obscure what these messages are about. These sermons are about the Holy Spirit. But I want you to know that we can speak of the Holy Spirit until the day that Christ comes again and we would never depart from the revelation of Jesus Christ. I read from 1 Corinthians last week where Paul said that no one can say that Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Spirit. In fact, this is one of the things that we'll learn, and that is the Holy Spirit's purpose is to reveal Christ. Now, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but that's an important point, one that you really do need to know for this study. What is the purpose when we talk about the three persons of the Godhead. What does the Spirit do? And Jesus told his disciples specifically what the Spirit would do. We read it in John 16 a moment ago. If you want to look at it, or uh, I'm not sure if I have it on the screen. Uh, no, just the reference. So you've got your Bible open there. Look at verse 13. It says, how be it when he, the Spirit of truth, and there we notice he is also called the Spirit of truth, when the spirit of truth is come, he will guide you into all truth. Listen, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. Verse 14, he shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and show it unto you. So there, there we find, in just a nutshell, the primary work of the Holy Spirit. He glorifies Jesus Christ. He doesn't trumpet himself. He makes sure, yes, that we do know this. Christ is the central figure of the scriptures. Jesus Christ is our redeemer. Christ died for our sins. Jesus Christ breaks those unbreakable chains of sin and death and sets us free to live eternally. Well, we'll learn much about the Holy Spirit. We can never separate what we know about him from what we must know about Christ. So our purpose here is to overcome confusion about his person and work. And then by way of further information, at the 1st of January, we finished up a study of worship. If you don't know about the Holy Spirit or you are confused about him, then you can be led into false worship. So we want to worship the Holy Spirit instead of emphasize him wrongly like many do. We want to make a very clear distinction between the way that we believe God ought to be worshipped and the false worship that claims to be the work of the Holy Spirit but then clearly is against the word of God. Well, we'll discuss this in later sermons, but it's clear that much of the confusion about worship is wrongly interpreting the Holy Spirit and 
He is not the author of confusion. It's people who don't understand. It's people who don't know who he is. That's what leads to the confusion. They don't understand the part that he plays in salvation. They don't know what's going on with daily living. They don't know how to worship God properly. If you've been asked, who is the Holy Spirit? Or if you've been asked, what does the Spirit do? And you couldn't give a clear, concise answer to that question? Then don't feel like you're alone. Because there are many, many Christians who just don't know. You are in the company, maybe not here, but in the company of many that you fellowship with as Christians that just don't know that much about the Holy Spirit. So my hope is that we can clear up some of these misunderstandings and I think it will be helpful for us because the Holy Spirit's ministry is vital for Christians. And even if you don't understand him, it doesn't mean that he's not at work in you. But if you don't understand him, then your life will not be as enriched as it should be by having that knowledge. Okay, I've chosen for our text... Uh, and for the first several messages, at least, our text is Acts chapter 19. This is a very special scripture, and that's not to say that others aren't special. Uh, I say it's special because there's much more going on here than questions about the Holy Spirit. And we'll notice them in passing. We're not going to talk about those other issues. Maybe just briefly mention them. But rather, our our issue here is the problem of misunderstanding the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse number 1. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus, and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied, and all the men were about twelve. I think you can see some troublesome issues in this passage. As I said, my purpose is not to exposit all of them. I remember when we studied Acts, Acts 19, or the book of Acts, uh, we came to this 19th chapter. That was 19 years ago now. And we came to this 19th chapter, and we were doing a verse-by-verse study. And in a verse-by-verse study, you have to take on all the issues that are there. You don't want to be accused of skipping over something. So we take all the issues that are there, and so I did. And it's 19 years later, and I'm still traumatized by these verses. Uh, I, I, I don't want to go off topic here, but that baptism thing here, that, that's a very difficult thing. It's hard. I read so much material on this, going from place to place and reading from author after author after author, and so many different opinions about what's going on in these six verses. And it's the only place in the Bible where we find that anyone was baptized a second time. Is there a warrant for that? And the various interpretations... There was controversy centered on, were these disciples truly saved? And the baptism that they were baptized with, they said John's baptism. Was it in fact John's baptism? Was it John the Baptist himself who baptized them? Or was it a disciple of John? And would that have been proper? All of those things, all of those things are are important issues and interesting issues. And if you're interested enough, then you can look into it. Just don't look me up. Uh... Well, so in this text, we see that Paul was in the city of Ephesus. This was his second visit to the city. Going back into the 18th chapter in verse 19, we have the account of his first visit there. And then he went into the synagogue and he spent some time discussing the scriptures with the Jews. I know we have no doubt what he was talking about. He went in there to teach them, tell them, show them that Jesus Christ is the Messiah that they had been studying in the Old Testament scriptures. So he spent his allotted time, which wasn't very much time, and then he said, I need to return to Jerusalem. 
They wanted him to stay longer to hear more, but he was determined that he was going to go to Jerusalem and get there in time for the Passover. But he promised that he would return. And in chapter 19, this is where Paul kept his promise. And when he returned, he found some disciples. Now these, of course, are men who claimed that they were followers of the one true God. We notice in the second verse that Paul asked them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they answered, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. Unfortunately, there's much false teaching that's come from this question and from the answer. There are some who believe that receiving the Holy Spirit is an act that is subsequent to salvation. In other words, you get saved, you believe, you're saved, you're saved by grace, but then sometime, sometime later, who knows when, who knows when it will be, there's a second work of grace. Then that's when you get the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now some of the confusion that we find in this passage is just that little word, since. Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And it's helpful for us to understand what the King James Version means when it says since. Is that really the best interpretation for us today? Best translation, I should say. We use the word today, since, to indicate a succession of time. And so we look at the passage and we see that receiving the Holy Ghost, it appears, comes set sometimes later, sometime later than belief. But the word here is better translated as when. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And those of you who may be King James purists, you can crucify me a little bit later for saying this. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And I want you to catch some important doctrinal points. Paul makes the gift of the Holy Spirit the true test or the test of true belief. All believers receive the gift of the Holy Spirit when they believe. In fact, the Apostle John verifies Paul in 1 John 3.24. He says, And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. So there's no person who could claim that they got saved and got the Holy Spirit sometime later because then they would have no knowledge of salvation at all. This is how we know that we believe. The Holy Spirit is in us. He's a gift that's been given to us. So when Christ is in us by the Spirit which he has given, then we know we're Christians. And so John verifies our title, the Spirit of Christ. That is Christ in us. I don't think there is real confusion in these verses over the question, is there a Holy Spirit? And that's the way that we might want to read it. They're asking, is there a Holy Spirit? We never heard of that before. Well, of course they've heard of that before. If they knew anything about the Old Testament, they would know it. The Old Testament is all they'd ever heard before. That's what the apostles preach. It's all they had to preach. And the Holy Spirit is in the Old Testament. And if they had the baptism of John, they knew about the Holy Spirit because John preached the Holy Spirit in Matthew 3, verse 11. But what they didn't know was the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. They didn't know that the Holy Spirit came to dwell in all believers in a special way. They were like the Old Testament saints that didn't know that the Messiah had come and thus that the Holy Spirit had come. So they were still worshiping like those in the Old Testament. Then when Paul laid his hands on them, he baptized them and he laid his hands on them and they didn't receive the Holy Spirit himself at that time, but they received the gifts of the Spirit that were peculiar to first century Christians. So we have a group of disciples that believed, but they were confused. They were confused about the Holy Spirit. They didn't know this new ministry of the Spirit. They didn't have correct knowledge. And so the problem then is they can't utilize this special power that is available to all Christians who know Jesus Christ. He is in us. And the Holy Spirit gives us the power to live Christian lives. We walk with Christ because of the Holy Spirit. And without the proper knowledge of the Spirit, we walk as crippled Christians. 
We don't get around very well. And I hate to use Brother Dalton as an example, but he's having a hard time getting around. If we want to spiritualize that and say, well, Brother Dalton is spiritually crippled because he doesn't understand the Holy Spirit. Well, that's the way that you would walk on a kind of a crooked path. You can't get it straight, can't get it right, can't stay on the path. That's what happens to a Christian who doesn't know what they should know about the Spirit. Then it's important for us to understand that John's baptism was Christian baptism. It was a baptism of repentance. And that's a point that's certainly argued and somebody might want to pick on me because of it. I believe it was Christian baptism. It had a special emphasis on repentance. And the reason it does is because, now that's necessary for everyone, but the reason there's a special emphasis on repentance because repentance is a change of direction. Repentance is going, turning away from the way that you're going and walking a different way. That's what repentance is. Change from one direction to another. And the power to make that change is not yours. You can't do it. This power to change and go differently from what you are is in the realm of the Holy Spirit's work. These people were not aware of the Holy Spirit to help them walk with the Spirit. So to live a fulfilled Christian life, walking pleasing to the Lord, we need instruction from Paul, just like they did, about what the Holy Spirit came to do. We live every day with the need of repeated repentance. We sin daily. And to live on a higher plane of Christianity and to keep our sins to a minimum We need to know the answer to this question about the Spirit. We need to know about the Christ who lives in us. So we'll talk about it. We'll see what the Bible says. What do the Scriptures tell us about the Holy Spirit? Well, number one on your listening sheet today is that the Holy Spirit is a person. If you've read a systematic theology, you'll recognize as we go through this that our outline is pretty much the classic approach. Maybe some of you don't know what a systematic theology is. So what I did was I brought two with me today to the pulpit. And if you want to have a look at a systematic theology and see what's in there, then there you go. Look to your heart's content, but don't take them home with you. Um, So we're we're taking kind of a classic approach to this. How do do we uh, explain the doctrine of the Holy Spirit? Well, we begin with the understanding that the Holy Spirit is not a an impersonal force. He is not an impersonal influence. And you might say, well, we all know that, of course. Well, maybe you didn't know that that is one of the major errors throughout Christian history. It's an error that still exists today. In fact, you can hear it preached on television today. You can hear this. The Holy Spirit, they say, is not a person. He's a force that proceeds from God, or he's the same as Christ, or he's the same as the Father. He's a Well, whatever he is. We'll get to all that a little bit later. They deny the personality of the Holy Spirit. And if you deny his personality, you must deny the Trinity. Does the Bible teach that the Holy Spirit has this criteria that identifies him as a unique person? Well, that's what we're going to spend our time on today. We want to look at proofs in Scripture that he does meet that requirement. Now, first, then, we look at his personal pronouns, the personal pronouns. One of the easiest proofs is to look at the way the scriptures refer to the Spirit. In the, in the upper room discourse, that's what we read in John, uh, Jesus spoke of the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit would begin his work in believers. We read a few minutes ago, and, and uh, this scripture I want to show you is instructive for its use of personal pronouns. Jesus explained uh, how the Holy Spirit would come and be his presence in them. Now, in the 13th verse of John 16, Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. Now, notice each time how the Spirit is referenced. Jesus said, He... He, the Spirit of truth, He will guide. He shall not speak of Himself. He shall hear. He will show. Those are words that are used of a person. 
Someone gave this definition of a person. A person is one who, when speaking, says I, who, when spoken to, is called you, and when spoken of, is called him or her. And you might notice that quote does not accede to uncertain gender pronouns. So maybe we could infer that a person who doesn't use male and female pronouns is not really a person. So those that claim the Holy Spirit is an impersonal force, they would need to get rid of all these many instances in Scripture where personal pronouns are used. Secondly, the Holy Spirit thinks. He thinks. We might say also that he is intelligent. Paul wrote in Romans 8.27, And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. The first he in that verse is God the Father. He that searcheth the hearts, that's the Father. The second he is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has a mind, and thus he is an intelligent being. Now, you do want to do this. You want to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And look at this scripture. We'll spend a little bit of time here. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul relates much information about the Spirit in just a few verses. This is one of my favorite passages. I come back to it often for its usefulness in explaining the inability of man and the essential work of the Spirit. Now, if you don't think you need to know much about the Spirit, well, check this out. Mark it in your Bible because it's helpful for your understanding. 1 Corinthians 2, beginning in verse 9. But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard Neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Sometimes that verse is preached as a reference to heaven. And we can't understand through human wisdom what God has prepared for us in heaven. Paul is not talking about heaven in this verse. This is a quote from Isaiah 64 verse 4. There he's speaking of the mysteries of God that were sealed up and not understood from the symbols and the prophecies of Old Testament scripture. The eye, the ear, the heart of man, they are not enough to decipher all of these mysteries. But notice how we are able to understand them in verse 10. But God hath revealed them to us by his spirit. For the spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man, but the spirit of God. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Now, it's clear there, the scripture knows things, or spirit rather, knows things. In fact, the spirit knows the deep things of God. The spirit deciphers what we can't know without him and causes us to understand them. He has intelligence that is nothing less than the infinite knowledge of God. In the 13th verse, we read, Which things also we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. So the Spirit uses this great wisdom that he has to teach spiritual principles that are unknown to natural people. We don't come by this knowledge naturally. One who has the mind saturated with knowledge, with special intelligence. He's the one who's able to teach us what we don't know and cannot know in our own wisdom. Our instructor is the Holy Spirit. He helps us to understand what God requires of us. So we need him to speak to our spirit and show us how to walk with God. Who is the Holy Spirit? That's an important question. Because he's the one who teaches us all that we can know about God. The 14th verse seals up the inability of man to understand salvation and to come to Christ without the Spirit's regenerating work. Verse 14 says, but the natural man, that's the person with no knowledge of Christ, he's not saved. He doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness unto him. He just passes over them. So that's nutty stuff. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Once again, you don't get this by your own wisdom. You've got to have God to reveal it. 
How do we understand? Well, go down to the 16th verse, and in the end it says, We have the mind of Christ. All of this talk of the spiritual mind shows us once again, when he comes to that point, that the Spirit of Christ is the Holy Spirit. Then there's another marvelous aspect of the personhood of the Spirit. The third thing is that he feels. He feels. And I confess to you that I cannot understand all of this. I don't understand how God feels. I understand that such things as feelings are an accommodation to our understanding. We are humans. We can't understand God, what what He is exactly. And so He gives us these different expressions about Him that we can relate to. So God is described in anthropomorphic ways. Or in other words, He helps us to understand Him using familiar human characteristics. I do know the scripture says that we are made in the image of God. And so the emotions that we feel must be somehow related to God. Interestingly, one of these, one of these feelings that the Spirit has is that of grief. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. Ephesians 4.30 says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you're sealed unto the day of redemption. I don't know about you, that kind of scares me. I can grieve God? And what will God do to me if he's grieved? It's kind of a scary thought. An influence or a power can't be grieved. That's an emotion that belongs to a living being. A person can be grieved, not an inanimate force. The Holy Spirit is grieved. That happens when we are disobedient. He's grieved when we rebel and we resist him. He's a person. He can be insulted. We can contemptuously disregard the Spirit, as the writer in Hebrews 10.29 says. The Holy Spirit can also be lied to. In Acts 5, Ananias claimed that he sold, all of his, he sold his property and gave all the proceeds to the church. And Peter knew that wasn't true. And so he said to them, him, Why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? In the preceding verse, number 4, he said, You've not lied unto men but unto God. You might take note of that verse or maybe jot down a little note there. That'll be important when we talk next week about the Holy Spirit as God. How do you lie to a force? Is that possible? If he's a person, he could be lied to. And lying to him and rebelling and resisting him are acts that grieve the Holy Spirit. He knows love. He knows hate. He loves you because you are a child of God. He would much rather teach an obedient child than to chastise a disobedient one. You need to know him so you can be sure that you are obedient. He can also be blasphemed. What is blasphemy? Well, that's the curse. That's to speak impiously. It's to speak irreverently. According to Jesus, the Holy Spirit can suffer suffer the abuse of blasphemy. I don't think Jesus would be too concerned about that if he was talking about it in personal force. He says in Matthew 12, 31, Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. Now you might walk to the back wall of the auditorium, just above Jorge's head, and you might call that wall every name in the book. You can curse it. You can kick it. You can put your fist through it. That's been done a time or two. You can throw things at it. You can chip it. It's been repainted many, many times. No matter how mad you get and how defiant you are, you have no effect on the wall. The wall has no feelings. The wall is stone cold death. The wall can't hear you. It can't do anything good or bad to you. It's just the wall and an animate thing. Try that with the Holy Spirit. Take cover if you do. Well, you don't really need to take cover because it wouldn't help. You can't hide from him. David said, Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. You can't get away from the spirit. So you best watch what you do with him. And notice this too, that Jesus forgives blasphemy against him, but not against the Holy Spirit. That's another very interesting thing. Do you think Jesus would put the wall back there, an inanimate object above him, 
So he says, well, I'll forgive you. I'll forgive you if you sin against me, but I will not forgive if you put your fist through the wall. And that would be how much sense it makes to call the spirit of force when you have to contend with all these scriptures. In regards to Matthew 12, 31, what does that mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Well, that's another subject to be taken up at a later time. It's bad because the Holy Spirit has feelings. Apparently, he acts objectively and subjectively. Those are an action or actions that a force is incapable of. Now, fourthly, the Holy Spirit is a person because he wills. He wills. This is important for us because it's through the will of the Spirit that spiritual gifts are given. The gifts that help to build the church. Now, if you still have 1 Corinthians 12 open, not sure, you might have turned from there, but the 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians, it's... Uh, Paul explains the operation of the church as the body of Christ. A body is made up of parts that has parts that have different functions. There's diversity in the body, which he explains. He says not not everything in your body, not every part is an eye, not every every one is an ear, not everyone is a toe. And translating that metaphor, he's telling you that everybody can't be the pastor of the church, among other things. Not everybody can be the pastor of the church. Not everybody can be a deacon. No, not everyone has the same gifts for service. See how Paul explains beginning in verse 4. Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. I put a circle around that verse because it's a very good one. Notice here that God is one, same Spirit, same Lord, same God. And what you have there is the Trinitarian formula in reverse. God the Spirit, God the Son, God the Father. They are one God with one purpose. Now notice which part of the Godhead makes the distinctions in the spiritual gifts that are given. That comes in verse number 7. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom. To another, the word of knowledge by the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, the gifts of healing by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, diverse kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. How does the Spirit determine how these gifts are distributed. That's another proof that he has a mind. He decides who gets the gifts. So you don't you don't wake up one day and say, well, here's the gift that I want. Here's the gift that I think that I need. I need to have just a little bit more authority in the church. I need more authority. Um, I need um, to take this job, not that one. That, that's a little bit beneath me. I don't think I want that job. I'll take this other job. Did, did you know that there are many, many men that are in the ministry that are self-appointed, self-called? You'd be surprised the numbers of people that get into pastoral ministry because they think that they're talented enough. They think that they know enough. They thought they're smart enough. They thought they understood enough. And so they just walked into the pulpit one day and said, I think I can do this. Well, here's information you really need to know about your place in the church. It's in verse 11. But all these worketh that one and self-same spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. You don't call yourself. The Holy Spirit decides who does what in the church, and he gifts you for certain things in the church. He's the one who issues the instructions, and we work in conjunction with his will. So you see how he's a person? None of these functions, intelligence, feelings, will, that's not owned by a force. He is a person. Now, fifthly, the Holy Spirit is a person. Well, I think we wrap it up here. He acts. He acts as a person. Going back to John 16, 13, Jesus told the disciples, Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself. But whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. Now, you might, you might think you're getting a lot of information today. A whole lot of stuff going on here we're talking about. Well, that, that's what those are for. And that's why they're so thick. There's just so much information that we can learn from the scriptures. So the Holy Spirit acts by guiding us into truth. 
hearing, speaking, and showing. What's the truth Jesus speaks of? Well, the most important thing the apostles could learn was what they would do, how they would continue after Jesus was gone. Jesus introduced them to the concept of the church in Matthew 16, 18. But we look at the teachings of Jesus and in none of them is there an explanation about everything that the church does. We don't find Jesus talking about specifically about pastors of the local church. We don't find Jesus speaking very much about spiritual gifts. He says nothing at all about the administration of the church. Those are all subjects that that are left to the explanations that we find in the epistles, not in the gospels. Someone said that the, the gospels are the explanation of what Jesus taught. These different aspects of the church are then are found in the rest of the New Testament after the resurrection, after Jesus ascended back to the Father. So that's what the apostles dealt with. All these issues and other instructions that were given to the churches they founded. So how did they get all the information? Jesus didn't talk about them. So how did they get all the information? The Holy Spirit was sent to be their guide. The Holy Spirit is the one who inspired them, inspired their learning. He inspired what they wrote as scripture for their time and for future disciples such as you and me. Now, if you wonder, how do we know the leadership of the Holy Spirit? That's not a hard question at all. About 100% of it's right here. It's already been written down. You just got to pick it up and read it. Take your Bible. That's the reference book that tells you how the Holy Spirit leads you. Well, what does it mean here in John 16, 13? Jesus um, says the Spirit will not speak of himself. What does he mean, not speaking of himself? Well, it means that the purpose of all things the Spirit teaches is to glorify Jesus Christ, as I said in the beginning. Not that the Holy Spirit doesn't deserve glory. Not that. Not that he doesn't deserve praise. But it's not fitting for us to put the Holy Spirit into our pigeonhole and change the work that he does in the Godhead. It's the Son who redeems. It is the cross that we look to. It is the Savior who is spoken of as the one who will sit on the throne and every knee shall bow to him. Everything the Spirit does emphasizes the Savior. Our work in the church Many different administrations of the Spirit are so that we may exalt Christ. We never read in the New Testament that we are to go out and preach the Holy Spirit. We're not even told we should go out and preach the Father. But we are told to preach Christ and Him crucified. So the work of the Spirit is to point us to Christ. What does it mean when Jesus says the Spirit will hear and speak? What does He hear? Well, he hears the instructions of the Father and the Son. Well, that raises the question, does he? I mean, he doesn't already know that? He's God, doesn't he know that? Well, yes, he knows that. There's an agreement in, in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But it's represented here by hearing because this is the way that we communicate. This is an accommodation for us. He speaks what he hears or he instructs us in ways that are perfectly consistent with the work of the entirety of the Godhead. There's unity in the Godhead, so there's never any inconsistency in their work. The Holy Spirit communicates exactly the plans and purposes of God formulated before the foundation of the world. We also learn in the 16th chapter, one of his activities is to convict of sin. Verse 8, and when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of judgment, of righteousness and of judgment. So he's got multiple activities concerning convicting sin, showing us righteousness, declaring judgment on the works of Satan. There, there are many, many, many other activities, and I could, we could just go through a whole list, but one that you really need to get acquainted with so you can understand how he, how he uh, works in you. He is your helper for everyday living. He intercedes with our spirit. Romans 8.26, Likewise, the spirit also help with our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, But the Spirit himself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, if you didn't know the Holy Spirit, then you might not even be aware that you don't really know how to pray. 
Sometimes we are so burdened that we don't even know how to ask. Our need can be greater than our ability to understand the need. But the Holy Spirit knows every recess of our heart. He knows every thought. He knows every wrinkle of the brain. And what he does is he takes those prayers and interprets them the way that they should be for God to hear so he can answer those prayers. And, and he, we ask for precisely the right thing. So sometimes you might feel like, I don't know what to ask. I'm asking in the right way. Well, the Holy Spirit can take care of that for you. One of the great benefits that we have. None of that's possible by an impersonal force. The Holy Spirit is a person. And we learn his unique personality and through it we can be fully blessed. Who is he? Great question. We need to answer correctly. We can't live as we should unless we know him as he enables us every day to walk in the power of God. So you can see then when these disciples came to Ephesus and they said, well, you know, we haven't heard anything about the Holy Ghost. And so Paul says to them, fellas, before we take one more step, You need to know what you're missing. And the greatest thing missing is that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. If you don't have him, you don't have Christ. So we learn about him. And we eliminate the wrong ideas because they lead to confusion. God does not want a confused church. Now let me conclude just a very brief comment. Our purpose, again, is always to exalt Christ. We must speak of the Holy Spirit because... He is the agent in the exaltation of Christ. He never speaks of himself. He speaks of Christ. So today, in this message, this is our theme. It is to point you to Jesus Christ. And this is what we will do. We will do all the work that God calls us to do. We will preach Christ and tell you that the only hope that you have for your soul is Jesus Christ. He's the one that gave his life to ransom your soul and to pay the penalty of your sins. Only Christ can promise eternal life to all those that are helpless to come to him. And so through this message, the Holy Spirit speaks to you, and the message that he delivers is, come to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your word. So much that there is here for us to look into and many, many more things that we don't have time to explain. And we're just thankful, Lord, that we have an opportunity week after week to stand in the pulpit to present the word. And Lord, we, we, we pray for, for people and ask them uh, you to help their understanding of what we've said. And really, this is a message that needs to be told beyond the, beyond the limited membership of this church we need to bring others in to hear the word, not to entertain them and not to, not to make their time in church to be whimsical and really not even to think too much or too hard about Scripture. Lord, this is the best thing that we can do is to get down and dig it out and find out more about you. You are in the word, and that's what we want. We want to get you uh, out of the word and into our hearts, and that we do by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, Father, we thank you. Bless our people today. We hope that they have been enriched by hearing God's word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Brian Baptist Church 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.